0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, we, uh, we thank you so much for gathering us together as a church family. And uh, just the love that's here that is your love um, through each person is just wonderful to enjoy. We pray for a great time of fellowship. We thank you for inviting us so richly into into worship, as Kenny did this morning, as he called us to worship, Lord, that we felt your heart in inviting us to this place. And as we come into this place, so Lord, we realize that we're sinners. We, We realize that we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much in our own devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended your holy laws. We have left undone things which should have been done, and we have done things that ought not to be done. And so we ask, Lord, for your mercy. Almighty God, have mercy on us. Forgive us for our sins through Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would strengthen us to live lives of power in the Holy Spirit all the days of our life. Father, we are, as the old song says, prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. prone to leave the God we love. And we pray you'd take our hearts and seal them for your courts above. Now, Lord, you are the one who can alone tame unruly wills and affections of sinful people. And so we pray, Lord, that you would do that for us. We pray that you would help us to love the things that you've commanded and desire the things you've promised. And we, we pray all this with great boldness because we come through your Son. And we pray this with great hope, knowing that you've done it so many times before and that you do desire to feed your lambs, your people. And so we pray that you do that through your word this morning. In Jesus' name. And all God's people say, amen. So here we are. We're at the end of 1 Peter, and it's a series called uh, Keep Going, and we've kept going. And we've made it all the way here. And it's a book about perseverance. It's a book about perseverance through suffering. It's a book about perseverance through suffering following Jesus. And um, it's a book that really is designed to give you strength to endure, to, to strengthen your spiritual bones and your spiritual muscles, to give your spiritual heart and lungs more endurance so that you can keep going following Jesus. It's about perseverance. And this week, I was at a table in our backyard just working on this, and I was admiring my cactus, and I was thinking about how much I prefer perennials to annuals. I greatly prefer perennials to annuals. You guys know the difference, right? Perennials are plants that just keep on going, right? Annuals kind of come up, they spring up, they're real flashy, and they die. And a lot of times annuals are really pretty. That's what's causing all the traffic on the 15, you know, with all the uh, poppies and stuff. That's what's causing Josh heinous allergies at this very minute. And they're often beautiful and flashy, and they spring up. But then what happens? We all know it's going to get hot, and they're all just going to die out, right? But perennials keep going. Now, perennials are not always beautiful. Sometimes they're beautiful, sometimes they're not so beautiful, but they persist. And our backyard is full of all kinds of things you'd want kids to be around, like aloes and agaves and cactus and stuff like that. The ultimate perennials, right? And my favorite is in the back corner on the left side, and it's an ocotillo. I don't know how many of you guys know what an ocotillo is, but it's. Um, I love this plant. It's kind of a plant from my childhood because we go to the desert all the time. And it's these long, slender, like, wooden cane things with thorns on them, a super, like, angry plant, right? And a lot of the year it looks dead, you know, and I wanted this so bad, and Tosh, she's so great, she, like, really was like, okay, we'll get one, and I'm like, well, it's in Palm Desert, so we drove out there to get this thing, and when you get it, like, it had leaves on at that time, and they wrapped it with this, like, paper so that you could somehow handle it, because otherwise, how do you even get it in and out of your car and stuff? So it's crazy, but I love this, I love this Ocotillo, but every year it, it has these little leaves, and then the leaves fall off, and then there's no way to tell if it's alive. I mean, it's that unattractive, that it's, there's no way to tell it's alive. I've Googled, like, how can I tell my is alive, and there's a way you can, like, break the things, and if they're a little moist on the inside, you know it's alive, but it's that dead looking, you know? But then, this week, Monday, out of nowhere, boom, leaves, and I was, like, so happy. Wasn't I happy? I mean, it was like I took uh, antidepressants or something. I was like, it's so great. Look at its leaves. Did you see the leaves? Were the leaves here Sunday because I was gone? Uh, Were they here Sunday because now they're here? And she's like, I don't know. I wasn't looking at it. And I'm like, well, they're here now, you know, and so I'm really excited. I love perennials. And God loves perennials too. You guys are perennials. You guys who have been following Jesus for years and decades are perennials. During that time, lots of others had sprung up and, made flashy declarations of faith in Jesus, and then when the heat came, they withered away and died. They were annuals. But you guys are like my Ocotillo. You guys persist. You persevere. You don't always look so good. Right? Especially in times of suffering. You'd be dry and kind of prickly to other people and stuff like that, but you persist. And then when, you know, the rains come, when spiritual times of renewal come from the Lord, you're leafy and you're blooming again. You guys persist. You persevere. That's what this book's about. You are an Ocotillo. Um, and you might ask the question like, why do you persevere when so many others haven't, you know? Why do you persevere when the heat of affliction has wiped out so many others? And Peter tells us here at the end of the letter that the ultimate reason that you persevere is that God is persevering you. And I think it's a wonderful way to end because the letter is all about persevere, 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 but in the end, he wants to remind us that it's not so much about our striving, but it's about God's sustaining. It's not so much about our ability to fight, but his ability to remain faithful. It's not so much about our carefulness that will get us to heaven safely, but his care for us. And that's what we see at the very end of the book here. Take a look at verse 10. He says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Isn't that awesome? What he's saying is he's saying God started your salvation. He called you to his eternal glory in Christ, which is amazing. You called you to that, and he will finish it. He says he will establish you. You guys realize that God has never once lost one of his kids along the way, ever. Ever. And Jesus says that, um, it, that we're safe in the Father's hand and, and nobody's able to take us out of his hand, right? That, that we'll make it safe to the end. God is the one who saves. It's for us to trust and wait for his deliverance. And Peter does this really cool thing in verse 6 to kind of give a creative image of this. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Um, do you guys recognize that phrase, mighty hand of God? in the Old Testament? Where was that used over and over again in the Old Testament? Mighty hand of God to refer to what? Anyone? Mighty hand of God. Outstretched arm. The exodus, right? Over and over again in the Old Testament, it talks about the Lord brought his people up out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And I really do think that Peter's wanting us to pick up on that mighty hand thing and think of an exodus. And think of the fact that Jesus, in God, Jesus has uh, in in jesus god has given his people a second exodus that he has rescued us out of a greater household of slavery, out of a greater Egypt, out, out of the kingdom of darkness, right? And he's rescued us from a greater tyranny to a greater Pharaoh, which is Satan, right? And he's, and he's done it through a greater Passover. Remember the Passover? They slaughter the Passover lamb. They put the blood on the doorposts. That we have been rescued out of the land of bondage by Christ, the true Passover lamb, and his blood on us makes God's judgment pass over us so that he doesn't affect us. Um. And that we're being led now through the wilderness by a greater Moses, right? That Christ is leading us through the wilderness to the true promised land. And that true promised land is, is the new heavens and the new earth, the new world to come. He's leading us to it. And just like in the Exodus, guys, God alone is going to accomplish our deliverance right? God alone will do it. And that's why he says in verse 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties in him because he cares for you. So we humbly wait under the mighty hand of God, waiting for the inheritance of that true land. But Peter gives us here in this last passage, because it's, it's kind of a whole bunch of final greetings and stuff, and sometimes you don't know what to do with passages like this. But I see in the end of this passage three practices that we could be engaged in as we wait under the mighty hand of God so that we will be more fruitful in this time. Going back to the Akitio example, that you could flower and be leafy more of the year, right? There's three practices that he has here, and the three practices are these. Spiritual warfare, maybe you saw it in the reading. Second one, gospel tenacity, standing firm in grace. And then the third one, warm fellowship. And I was talking to Chad about it this week, and he was like, you know, it's kind of interesting because different Christian traditions kind of have emphasized one over the other. And I, that got me thinking about this. He was like, you know, when you think about spiritual warfare, you think of kind of a charismatic type tradition. When you think of gospel tenacity, you think of like the Reformation tradition. I mean, we've been tenacious about the gospel since the 16th century, right? I mean, this is that's the thing that, that the Reformed tradition does. And then I was thinking about the warm fellowship, and I was thinking of kind of the monastic tradition, you know, of Christians gathering together, living together as brothers and sisters. And, and so what, what, God's calling us to do here is to is to have all three of these, right? It isn't that one tradition should have this and one should have that. We should all have a, a spiritual warfare that we engage in. We should all have a tenacity about the gospel. We should all have kind of that warm fellowship. It's not because one kind of plays on the other, right? Like the gospel tenacity, that's great for us, like kind of cerebral types, right? Thinking about clarifying the gospel and and digging into it, and maybe the the spiritual warfare part, kind of. It, it, plays more to people that are more emotionally oriented or something like that, and then maybe the monastic plays to more kind of the people that aren't the loners but are kind of communal, but we're called to have all three of these. So let's look at them. The first one is spiritual warfare. Look at verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking somebody to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Um, Fruitful perseverance, right, requires practicing spiritual warfare. And you might say, like, warfare? That's kind of crazy. I I live in a very safe place. I don't deal with war. Warfare. Why warfare? We are engaged in spiritual warfare because we have a devouring enemy, okay? Okay. Verse 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking somebody to devour. And at this, if you're kind of a modern person, you might think, come on, Eric, you really believe in like a literal, personal Satan? You believe in a real devil? You know what I'd say to you guys? You don't. Like, how do you explain the evil that springs up in this world? I mean, deep evil. You could say, well, you know, they had bad childhoods. No, 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 no. There's something deeper here, okay? There's something worse here that springs up, even in our own hearts, right? But certainly throughout the world. And it makes a lot of sense that there's a personal force behind that. I mean, if you believe in a God, it makes very sense, lots of sense to believe And the devil, in fact, I think the devil is one of the most believable parts of the Bible when you look out at the world. He's behind the evil in this world. He's behind the evil persecution that these poor people are facing in the first century. It says in verse 8 that Satan, he prowls, so he's hunting. He roars. The intention of that is to terrify you, um, make you freeze up. He devours. He desires to devour your life your marriage, your kids, your family, your, our church, our community. He's a devourer. That's what he does. And spiritual warfare in this text involves two main things, vigilance and resistance. You see him in verse 8? First, the vigilance. Look at verse 8. He says, but uh, be sober-minded and be watchful. I think we all need to be reminded of this, especially in our culture where everything seems kind of peaceful and kind of good and we're kind of materialistic and consumeristic. He says, be sober-minded that there's a type of spiritual sobriety we need to have. Because, guys, sin, like alcohol, intoxicates us. It makes us stupid. It makes us confused. It makes us spiritually drowsy and easy prey for Satan, right? It's like you're walk, sleepwalking in a lion enclosure, right? That's what it's like if we're not awake. So it's like, hey, we need to wake up, right? You need to like come up to each other and be like, psh, psh, psh. you ever do that? Somebody's talking to you and you're like, man, you seem so spiritually just stuporous. you like, you've just kind of, you're not sober-minded. You, you could do that lightly, you know? You could just shake them and you could do this and you'd be like, wake up. You know, you have a real adversary. You're walking right into it. He says, be watchful too. Being watchful, being vigilant, that we need to be able to recognize his attacks when they're coming and when they happen, to know that they've happened. And I'm not saying from this passage, and you guys who know me know that I don't think this, but I'm not saying from this passage that every struggle we deal with is the devil or demons. But I'm saying we should consider it, and a lot of us don't, right? Some of us are fairly oblivious to his attacks. We think really about the material, we think about the psychological and the chemical and the social and things like that, but we don't think about the spiritual, right? Right? Um, this is an area that I tend to be kind of oblivious in, and I'm growing in that area. A couple months ago, um, Wayne, he always, he's not here because he's on a trip, but he sits right here, okay, <laughs> and he's like watching me. And, um, and before, before service, he'll often pray for me out here, and it's so great, like very intense, wonderful prayer before I come out here, which is so awesome to receive. And he's like, how did your week go? And I was telling him, and he goes, man, it sounds like you're under attack. And I was like, really, do you think? And he went like this. He goes, Lord, please, finally get it into this man's head that he's under attack. You know, it was so funny. It was like a fiddler on the roof is like Tevye or something. He's like, please, Lord, finally get it into his head. You know, it was so helpful. But what are some signs that Satan might be on attack? Division, huge. Think about that in the church or in a family, division. Persistent anger is a sign that Satan's on the attack. Um, In Ephesians, it says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath or give a foothold for Satan. Um, slander, something he loves to be about, um, violent outbursts, we see that a lot in the Gospels with people just kind of going crazy and, and having violent outbursts, um, enslaving self-destructive behaviors, you know, are something that Satan is very much into, we see that in the Gospels, we see that like with the demoniac and stuff, but you can see that on a much smaller scale of behaviors that are self-destructive that we get caught up in, false teaching is a sign he's on the attack, um, maybe sudden overpowering emotions. I mean, I've kind of wondered that for myself, depression, anxiety, things like that, and sometimes it's just like all of a sudden, bam, and you wonder, like, is this spiritual? Is this this an attack? Is this just, you know, is this something chemical in me? Is this, what is this? I don't know. And what I'm saying here is that Satan is not the only reason for those things, okay? But it's one of the differentials we should think about. You guys know what differential diagnoses are? So in medicine, I'm a vet, and one one of the things we do, if we have a, like, you have a cough, Okay. You don't go, oh, it's bacterial, give it down a box. No, you make a differential list. Cough could be bacterial, could be viral, could be allergic, could be cancer, could be, you know, some sort of uh, autoimmune thing. You make a list, right? And then you go down the list and you run tests and stuff. What I'm saying to you guys is that some of you never have the spiritual on your differential list, and you need to because you're not being watchful. Some of us have become practical materialists. We don't even consider spiritual reasons for why we might have... Tons of drama in our house, or, or tons of difficulty in our own hearts, or whatever. You know, we need to think about that. Ephesians 6.12 says this, and some of us really need to hear this verse. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. You think, when you're fighting with a kid, you're fighting with a wife, fighting with whatever. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So we need to consider that. It's a war. Be vigilant. Be watchful. Also, it says, resist him. Look at verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. He says to resist. Reminds me of James, right? In James 4, 7, it says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And I see in texts like that three things that we need to do when we are under spiritual attack. The first one is we need to repent. He says, draw near to God. We need to repent of any way that we have let that into our lives, that we have not been vigilant. We need to run to the Lord, right? This isn't a battle for us to fight alone. We run to the Lord. Um, Rebuke. Um, It is appropriate to rebuke demonic powers that harass you. Um, They have no authority to be in your life. They have no authority to be in your home. And guys, I know for some of you that don't come from that kind of background, it can be very simple, Okay, I know you guys are thinking Exorcist. Okay, it's not like that, right? It can be very simple. It can be by the authority of Christ, I command you to leave. It doesn't have to be dramatic. It doesn't have to be loud. It doesn't have to be shouting. I love what Wayne Grudem says in his theology book about this. He says there is no indication in the New Testament that the demons are hard of hearing. Nor are there any examples of such long periods of conflict in order to get a demon to leave, okay? So, you know, those movies and stuff, there's all this shouting and stuff. It's very simple. It's they have no authority. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, they have no authority in your life. They have no authority to be in your home. And you can command them to leave, right? Um, and then renewal. You know, he says, draw near to God, right? We need to walk closer to the Lord. We need to be more in the word. We need to be more in prayer. We need to patch the fences where we've let the serpent into the garden, right? To use a, a Genesis 3 analogy. Um, and and praying with each other can be really helpful. If you guys feel like you need prayer for this kind of thing, we'll have some people right in the back where Danny's sitting back there. We'll have uh, some leaders back there, and we'll, uh, we'll pray for you. So please, after service, come. We'd love to pray for you for this. Um, Grudem says this also Christians must resist expecting the enemy will flee God's kingdom will advance they will grow in faith and holiness through conflict and that God will take Satan's plans for evil and turn them for their good right that's the confidence we have in the kingdom and so practicing spiritual warfare secondly the third second practice is gospel tenacity look at verse 10 and after you have suffered a little while the god of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written you briefly, speaking about his letter here, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Peter here summarizes his whole letter by saying, This is the true grace of God. You know, these five chapters, this is the true grace of God. And then he says, Stand firm in it. We need to stand firm it. That's why I come up with the term gospel tenacity. We just stand firm in it. We need to hold on to it. This whole letter, the first Peter, is not something that we should leave today, right? This, this, this little letter right here, with even with its 35 commands, is all grace. Whether it's the 35 commands or whether it's the gospel realities in here, this is the true grace of God. If we could just but know it and remember it, and stand firm in it, and hold on to it, and love it, and focus on it, and center our lives around it, will be fruitful all the time, even in suffering. Like, this is the thing. Look at, look at just a few pages. One, two, three, four, five pages. You could just know this. And you could just, you know, snuggle up with it, and know it, right? <laughs> yeah, you're waiting for me to do that. Stand firm in it. Um, and we need to remember, guys, that, that from beginning to end, our salvation is grace. That's what he's getting at here with. Stand firm in it. From the beginning, if you look at verse 10, he says that he called you to his eternal glory in Christ. God, the God who made the universe, the God who made you, called you specifically to His eternal glory in Christ. Isn't that amazing? See, me? Yes, you. That's what it says. He started your salvation. He'll finish it. I, I think it's so cool that Peter ends this letter on an emphasis on God's sovereignty in our salvation. That God is sovereign. He's the one that keeps us saved. The theo- theological term for that is perseverance of the saints. Saints being all Christians. That all true Christians are kept until the end. That God himself sustains them. And in this, this is the same way he started the letter. Remember chapter 1 was all about that. And Now he's circling back to remind you after He's told you all these ways to persevere. He goes, God's going to do this for you. You remember how it started? I want to draw you a diagram. So this is, a, this is like more of a diagram that I did before, but I've like added to it. So I don't know if it's going to fit now. But um, you remember ver- how verse 2 started in chapter 1? Take a look at it, 1 Peter 1. So it started with telling us It started with telling us that the Father, before he made the world, so this is the beginning of time, right? Before he made the world in eternity passed, the Father actually foreknew and chose you. Here's you right here, right there the long neck. Okay, so that's verse 2. Isn't that cool? He thought of you. He thought of you. That's what verse 2 says. Verse 2 says that you were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And then verse 20 in chapter 1 says that before he made the world, God the Father thought and planned for to send his son to die for you. So this here's the cross here. And so the, the dotted line is like his foreknowledge, right? So he's He's thinking. He Even before he made the world, he thought of you, and he thought of how he'd save you through Christ. That's verse 20, right? And then... In verse, um, and it says in, in verse 20 that you would be um, sprinkled with his blood. And so, um, and then in time, what happened is that Jesus came, here's the son, and he came to die on the cross. And that's in verse 2, where it talks about you've been sprinkled with his blood, that he actually came to die for your sins, right? And then it says in verse 3, that at some point, God the Father sent the Holy Spirit to cause you to be born again. So here you are moving along, just kind of living along in sin. Here you are right here. And then there was some point in your life, right, that the Father says to the Holy Spirit, get him or get her, right? And the Holy Spirit comes and it says in verse 3 that he caused you to be born again to a living hope. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that cool? But that's not all. It also, in verse 4, it says that God is keeping your inheritance safe for you. So what's the inheritance? Well, the inheritance is that He is going to make all things new, right? And in a world with Christ reigning. In that world, because it's, it's not just like an ethereal heaven. It's, like a, it's a new earth with Christ reigning. We to be in Christ's presence. That's a crown, I know. It kind of looks like hair. Um, but it says in verse 4 that, that, that he has kept this safe for you. Verse 4, I'll read it to you. Verse 4 says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Right, And not only that, but in verse 5 it says that he guards your salvation right now by keeping you believing. So you're being guarded. I, I think this is amazing because look at this. So it's like protected on both sides. Like your inheritance is being kept and you're being guarded. He keeps you believing so your faith will never break. And not only that, but verse 7 says that whatever sufferings we encounter along the way here, I'm going to make some fire. Right? Does that look like fire? Okay, verse 7, that whatever suffering we encounter along the way here will not destroy our faith, will not cause us to walk away, but will actually strengthen our faith, it will purify it, and it will be more rewarded at the end. It says in verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? So this all, guys, is Grace. Salvation beginning to end, all of God and all in grace. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that cool? I love that. I love this. This is the best, right? And he says, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So practice gospel tenacity. How do we do that? How do we practice gospel tenacity? How do we stand firm in it? We do it, guys, by dwelling in this book, memorizing this book. Um, We do it by discussing this book with one another over coffee. I hope you guys do that sometime during the week. You open it up you discuss it with another believer. You do it by reading it at dinner. You do it by preaching the gospel to yourself. Do you guys do that? You preach the gospel to yourself. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Isn't that true? He says, take those thoughts that come to you first thing when you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they started talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday and your other problems. Somebody's talking to you. Who's talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself, he says. You have to take yourself by the hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must turn on yourself, abrade yourself, exhort yourself, say to yourself, hope in God, instead of that muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. Right? And then he goes on to say, and then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, what God is, what God has done, what he has pledged himself to do for you. Then, having done all that, end on this great note, defy yourself defy other people, defy the devil, defy the world, and say, I shall yet praise him. Do you guys do that? Preach to yourself? Or do you listen to yourself? You don't want to listen to yourself all day. That's not going to go well. We've got to preach the gospel to ourselves. We've got to practice gospel tenacity. And then thirdly, third practice, warm fellowship. I love this part. Look at verse 12. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So he talks about practicing warm fellowship. And I love the end of epistles when they kind of talk about the people that... um, kind of lesser-known men and women that are working with them in the gospel. Because a lot of times we get this idea that the apostles are like these lone superheroes, like that they're out there doing it all with the cape, right? We kind of think about it as um, like Batman, okay? Because the others kind of work together. Batman without Robin, Lego Batman. I don't know if you've seen the Lego movie. Lego Batman, kind of depressed in the cave by himself, does everything alone, Right? That's not what the apostles did. When we look at the epistles, the ends of them, we find out there's all these people working with them, right? Lesser known, men and women that are working with them on mission. We see that in the book of Acts. First guy he mentions here is Sylvanus. You know, Sylvanus, verse 8. He says, by Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written to you briefly. Sylvanus, also known as Silas, he was a Roman citizen who was a faithful friend of both Peter and Paul, which is kind of cool. He also goes by the name Silas, so you see him in Acts as well. Two different versions of his name. Um, Peter highlights here that Sylvanus or Silas was super faithful. And we see that in Acts 16, 17, and 18. He's planning churches with Paul. He actually co-authored multiple epistles. You don't notice that, but if you look at the beginnings of 2 Corinthians and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, he was listed as a co-author on those epistles. He was um, a courier. ...for the church, which was more than just a letter carrier. He would actually bring safely the word of God to other churches... ...and he would act as a representative. That's why Paul wants to vouch for him. Um, Back in Acts 15, when they had the Jerusalem Council... ...they trusted him to take that letter to the Gentile churches... ...to give them instructions. And so here's Silas, and and Peter wants to just acknowledge... ...how faithful this guy is. You know, he's been serving the church in so many ways... ...in whatever way they needed for decades... And I just thought of this, and I just thought of how many of you guys are like that, that you're a Silas, you're a Silvanus, you're a person that's been serving the church year in, year out, whatever needs are there. You just think of all the, even some of these mundane type things that need to happen for for this gathering to happen. It's just crazy. This thing just doesn't pop up. You know, you might think, like, this looks easy, but it just, it's a bunch of people doing a bunch of things. And you guys are like that, all of you guys, you're just faithfully serving brothers and sisters. It's so awesome and taking care of one another's needs, and being at hospital visits, and praying with each other, and taking care of each other's kids. It's just awesome. And I love how Peter trusts and honors Sylvanus. you know? Peter doesn't feel like, I got to take this letter myself. He's like, I trust this guy, and he honors him. And this just reminds us, guys, that the church is a community where we trust and honor one another, and we live faithfully for each other. Second one mentioned is she who is in Babylon, Just kind of cryptic, right? You're like, what is this? Well, In the first century, Babylon was uh, in ruins, so most scholars believe that this is a, a kind of a veiled reference to Rome, not Babylon. And, um, and so it, at this time, there, was, there wasn't really much there. So it, most scholars think that, that Peter was writing from Rome. He's sending love from the Roman church. And it's one of the echoes, guys, that's in this letter. And I think a slide went up. I could tell you guys were looking at something. Uh, and um, So there's some echoes. And so you've got the beginning of the letter and the end of the letter. And there's this kind of echo thing going on with the very last verses. So Peter, I, and then to the chosen, she is chosen, Diaspora. Now that's a word for God's people scattered in the nations, right? And then he, he's talking. To, he's talking to them as being the diaspora, those who've been scattered, who are exiles um, in the nations. And then he mentions Babylon, which was the big place that they were exiled in the Old Testament. Peace to you. Peace to you. So there's an echoing going on here. It also makes sense that he refers to the church in the feminine because the word ecclesia is a feminine word in the Greek, and so she is the church. And um, and talking about the church in this way would have been a way of continuing the theme from the beginning that we're elect exiles. We, we don't, we're resident aliens here. We're passing through. We're sojourners. This is not our ultimate home. And many think that Peter wrote this letter from Rome. And so what would have happened is he was out on his missionary trips and just like in the book of Acts, they would find where believers were and they would join up with whatever church was there. They would want to have fellowship with them, talk with them, engage with them. And that's what Peter had done. He came into Rome. He found the church there. He, he connects with them. And this reminds us, guys, to, to live with and be all in with the church wherever we end up. It's kind of a mobile society. Some of you are going to move. Most of you are fantasize about Texas, for some reason I can't understand, we're all going to Texas, like, have fun. Um, But you'll end up in some other place, and you want to be all in where the church is there, you know, you don't want to take years and years to get all in, and, and Peter didn't. Last person mentioned is Mark, look at verse 13, and so does Mark, my son. This is a cool story. The story of Mark is really cool. So, this Mark is also a guy named John Mark in the Gospels. He was Barnabas's cousin. So, Barnabas, the guy who would travel around with Paul planting churches. And Mark, or John Mark, went with Paul and Peter on the first missionary trip. So, they go off, everything's going great, and then Mark disappears. He deserts him. You know, maybe it got difficult, whatever. Maybe he got homesick. I don't know. He left. And then on the second missionary trip, you know, Paul and and Barnabas are getting together, and Mark's there. And Paul's like, what's this guy doing here? He's like, I want to take him. He's my cousin. And he's like, I'm not taking that guy. Okay, guy deserted us. And it says in Acts, and maybe this surprises you, that with Paul and Barnabas, it says there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas, or Silvanus in here, and departed having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And so it kind of worked out cool. You ended up with two teams, you know. But there was a sharp disagreement over this. But what's really cool about this story is that later Mark and Paul get reconciled. And you see this throughout the letters. If you look in Colossians, at the end, Paul mentions Mark in a favorable way. He mentions him at the end of Philemon, but the most touching part is at the end of 2 Timothy 4:11. That's right at the end of Paul's life. He knows he doesn't have much longer. He's he's asking for certain comforts to be brought to him, and he says this: "Get Mark and bring him to me, for he is very useful in ministry to me." Isn't that cool? That right there at the end of his life, he's like, "I need Mark." Isn't that cool? And and this reminds us, guys, that we are a fellowship of sinners, that we are all prone to cowardice and self-interest, but we forgive each other and we move on. That's what happened, right? You know, no one in the church needs to be permanently marked by their mistakes, right? I think that's very important in a church, especially in a smaller church. No one in the church needs to be permanently marked by their mistakes, guys. Mark wasn't. He wasn't. In fact, he was fully restored for usefulness in the kingdom, even more than you know already, because in the third century, the the historian Eusebius wrote about Mark, and he said that Mark is actually the one that wrote the gospel Mark, like he's that Mark, so he did okay right? He, uh, with Peter's help, wrote the gospel of Mark. He was also, church tradition tells us, the one that took the gospel to Africa and started missions in Africa. And so Mark turned out great. God perseveres his people. And I love how Peter here has such warm affection for Mark. He calls him my son, Mark. Isn't that great? And Peter's calling us guys to have that kind of warm affection for each other. Do you have that warm affection for each other? You know, the first step would be to get to know each other, and then there should be this warm affection for each other. And then I want to take it a step further. And you should show that warm affection for each other physically. Verse 14. (laughs) Greet one another with the kiss of love. And I know what some of you guys are thinking. You're very uncomfortable, and you're thinking... Dear Lord, please make kiss mean something different in the Greek. (laughs) Like, just please make make it mean like hearty handshake. So, and the four that Paul, Paul has four commands that he says greet one another with a holy kiss. Okay? And many have been very uncomfortable with this. The British have been very uncomfortable with this. The British Bible translator J.B. Phillips, you know how he translates the Phillips version? Give each other a handshake all around (laughs) as a sign of love. Right. Nice try. Very British of him, right? Like, oh, oh, I know what we don't do for everybody else in the world handshakes all around as a sign of love, right? No, no, that's not going to work. The point here, guys, is to feel deep affection for each other, the people in this room right next to you, and to show it in some appropriate physical way. Luckily, the modern church has developed something called the holy side hug. And this had, this is not something we had generations before. So it was either a kiss, handshake. Now you have side hugs, so you can go with that. But guys, we should we should actually be physically affectionate towards each other in an appropriate way. Um, last time last time I preached two weeks ago, I was super sick, and I put a name tag on myself. You guys saw it. it said sick, don't touch, because normally I hug most of you guys. I'm like, da, 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 hug them all, right? And I didn't hug any of you guys, and it felt weird because somebody would walk up like this, and I'd be like, and they'd be like you know? But um, it, it's, it's something that's important. It's important to greet each other. That's why, you know, having the greeters out front and, and them being really welcoming is super important. It's, it's important that we show our appreciation for each other. And I just want to tell you guys in this moment, I appreciate every one of you guys so much. I mean, it means so much to me that you would join up with this band of believers, this little band of believers, and that you would serve alongside us in the kingdom it's just it's for me i'm living the dream i love this you know and it's just so great that you guys are about this and i and i don't take any of you guys for granted in that i mean it and so affection for you guys comes easily to me it's totally easy to be like i have one person some people i've hugged they've been like hey this is my first time here after i hugged them and i'm like that's okay and they're like okay i don't think they returned but that's fine um no just kidding but uh, we, love, we love helping you guys. We love having you in our homes. Uh, for those of you who have Wednesday night free, we'd love for you to come and, and study the New Testament with us. But this affectionate fellowship in the church, guys, is such a blessing to those who are suffering. Have you ever been in that place? You come in, you're suffering, and you get a warm embrace by the church. You know, when the church is cold to God's people, this is a place where they are warmed by the love of other believers. You know, you come in beat up, you receive warm welcome. You hear the word of God, you worship the Lord, you receive the, the, the Lord's Supper, you receive prayer, you sent back out to get beat up and, and frozen, you know? Warm affection. Of and I just want to encourage you guys that your warm affection towards the people here is important. It keeps them going. It really does, and this reminds me of one of my favorite. I'll end on this, but this reminds well, I won't totally end on this. It reminds me of one of my favorite stories about Spurgeon, and it's probably it may not have even been Spurgeon, but here's the story. You know, it might be totally made up, but the story is this: that Charles Spurgeon, preacher in the 1800s, he noticed that somebody in his church had kind of fallen off attendance, and so he goes to his house. He knocks on the door. The guy's kind of surprised that Spurgeon's there, and uh, this pastor would show up in the middle of the week, and. Uh, and, and he's got a little fire going and Spurgeon walks in and he's not saying anything, he takes these tongs and he grabs like a red hot coal out of the fire and he takes it and he puts it right on the bricks in front and he watches it and he watches it go from like red hot to black, right? As it's kind of like dimming. And he looks at the coal, he looks at the guy, looks at the coal and then he takes it with the tongs and he puts it right back in with the other red burning coals, you know? And, and it slowly like turns red again and hot and everything. He looks at the coal, looks at the guy and the guy goes, I'll be there next week. Right? Isn't that awesome? Guys, we need each other. We will not burn hot for Christ for long without the warm fellowship of other believers. We weren't designed to. So we have three practices here: spiritual warfare, gospel tenacity, warm fellowship. We need all three. And then verse ten says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, I love this, restore confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the glory forever and ever. Um, Real quickly, Peter gives four words here. They all mean almost exactly the same thing. They're almost synonymous words. He says he will, God himself will restore you. Okay? If you're in a rough place right now, God will restore you. What does that mean? He will put all things right in the world. Remember on the diagram there, like the new world? He'll put all things right in the world. Everything you've lost for Christ will be restored. Jesus promised everyone who has left houses or Brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and in and inherit eternal life. So he'll restore you. He'll confirm you, which means that any position or privilege you've lost for Christ will be returned to you. He'll strengthen you. Any power that you've lost or given up for Christ will be restored to you. And then I love the last one. He will establish you. Which has a sense of foundation, a sense of land and foundation and dwelling. Um, In the Old Testament, the Lord often promised that he would plant his people in the land. And he's promising that to you. Like it says in Isaiah 65, they will build houses. This is talking about the world to come. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit and they shall not plant and another eat. Because that happened to them all the time. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen ones shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Doesn't that sound awesome? It'll establish you. In a little while, it says in verse ten, in light of eternity, this deliverance is just being a little while. And in the meantime, what are we called to do? Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. In the proper time, He will exalt you. You know that we're going to get the ultimate exodus to the ultimate promised land. And the Lord's Supper, guys, is a reminder of that exodus and that promised land. The Lord's Supper reminds us of Christ, who is the true Passover lamb, right? Who offered his own blood to cover our sins. Just as the Passover lamb was slaughtered and that blood was put on the the doorposts of their homes, so that the angel of death passed over them. That's why it's called Passover lamb. Passed over them so they weren't judged along with the rest of the world. Christ's blood has been placed over us so that the judgment of God just passes right over us that we aren't judged along with the world. The cup reminds us that Jesus' blood covers every one of your sins. Recent, past, future covers your sin. The Lord's Supper is also a way that God feeds us. Remember that the Hebrews in the wilderness, as they were wandering through the wilderness on the way to the promised land, they were fed manna. And this is one of the ways that God feeds us and sustains us in our wilderness journey to the true promised land. The Holy Spirit, as we take communion mysteriously, brings the true spiritual presence of Christ into us in in a fresh way as we take the bread and the cup, so that even now we receive some of that spiritual restoration and confirmation and strength and establishment as we wait for the reality of those words to come. And so, if you're trusting in Jesus and you're not trusting in anything that you've done to be welcomed into that land and welcomed into the presence of God, then we'd ask for you during this next song, this first song. Come forward, take the cup, take the bread. The bread's always gluten free. And hold on to him, And then what we'll do is right after the first song, we'll all take it together. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the way that you feed us. That every time your words open, every time we hear your word, that you yourself speak and encourage and fill us and feed us. And as you have fully fed us with the holy word of your uh, holy food of your word, we pray, Lord, that you would now fill us with the holy food and drink of your table. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us for this week to continue. We pray that you make us fruitful, you make us faithful. We pray, Lord, for this time of worship, that it would be um, a blessing to you, pleasant aroma in your nose. And we pray, Lord, that our, our gathering afterwards as we Talk with each other and pray for each other and encourage each other and just joke with each other and enjoy each other, Lord. We pray that you would feed us through that, too. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night that he was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after the supper, he took the cup of wine, which he had given thanks for, and he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. And he said, This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Let's do the same. Let's start with the bread. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is given for you, to preserve you, body and soul, into eternal life. Take and eat this in remembrance of Christ who died for you and feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. Let's take it together. And then the cup. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, to preserve you, body and soul, unto everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance of Christ's blood shed for you and be thankful. Let's take it together. Father, we thank you that you have given us the physical as well as the word, that we have the word to hear, and then we have these physical things of baptism and the Lord's Supper as physical reminders of what you've done in Christ for us. I Thank you for that. It's so helpful for us. And we thank you also, Lord, that you've given us each other to be physical reminders of what you've done for us in Christ. And we pray, Lord Jesus, stay with us. Be our companion on the way. Kindle our hearts and awaken our hope that we may know you as you are, revealed in the scriptures and in the breaking of this bread. Grant this for the sake of your love, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covegracemenifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.